0: Welcome to the New Deal podcast. Have you ever wondered if social studies could be more than memorizing dates and dusty old textbooks? Today, Dr. Timothy Patterson and the New Deal team discuss the role of citizenship, democracy and empathy in today's social studies curriculum.
1: So what is your favorite thing you've learned in social studies? Probably, like, the presidents. What about the presidents? Like, the way that their decisions and actions, what they did, like, affected us now. Like, Abraham Lincoln, like, ending slavery and stuff. I like social studies because I like learning about history.
2: Um, I remember that we... Um, We had to do a presentation on an African-American for social studies, and I did W.E.B. Du Bois.
3: Tim Patterson is an assistant professor in teaching and learning at Temple University. His primary scholarly interests unites two important strands of the research on social studies education, teacher education, and global studies. I want to thank you, first of all, Tim, for being on this interview and say good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good morning. So the general idea of the interview is because of the insurrection and the pandemic, we are most concerned with the education that students get in the social studies to prepare them to be active citizens who can inherit and improve our democracy. So Tim, to me, you're the perfect person to help us understand the state of the social studies and what we may need to improve our current situation.
2: I, I kind of think of myself as a teacher who happens to write about things. So I, I was a language arts and social studies teacher in the Philadelphia area for six years. Um, I have a master's in history and then my doctorate uh, in social studies education. And and so I, when working with social studies teacher, whether they're pre-service or in-service, I try to do as much as I can to blend the theory and the research that tells us, you know, what the best practices are with my lived experience in the classroom and, and having a sense for what social studies teachers tell me they they need and what I experience as a a teacher myself. For me, it's my hope that schools in general, that schools will create a a broader curricula that contributes to the democratic mission of schools. I think in a way we sort of lost track of that um, if if schools ever had it, right? Um, Shaped around a vision of engaged, informed citizenry, right? So social studies would be be one in a constellation of efforts. Um, I think we put two on social studies when we ask the social studies teacher to do it by themselves. And so social studies can be used uh, as an examination of persistent and historical issues that have and will continue to face citizens. Um, so I, I, I don't wanna overstate social studies roles because the, the role of social studies because I think it's, it's too big of a task for one 50 minute period a day.
3: Well, it's sort of like, it's, it's that balance, isn't it between like, is it all gonna happen in the social studies classroom? Okay, well, that sounds like a, like a burden. This may be not realistic if I'm hearing you right. So I think in, in, a, in a perfect world, and it'd be great if
2: the pandemic in this moment of turbulence, right? Where everything is, is is sort of stripped down to its component parts, and we're questioning why we do this, why do we still do that? that we might have a conversation about, does it make sense to divide up the child's school day in a way that, for instance, the disciplines don't divide them. You know, like the, the experts and disciplines don't divide up their work in this way. Um, so why do we do it to children, right? Now again, you know, Dewey was writing that at the turn of the last century. So we haven't taken it up in the last 120 years. So maybe I'm being a bit pessimistic here, but you know, I, I think that's the way,
3: the way forward. Well, in fact, that's the way people experience the world anyway. I mean, you don't experience the world like now it's a historic moment. Now look at there's there's art. Uh-oh, there's economics. Uh-oh, right, let's take off this chemistry. hat. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. So so th- this raises also the issue of uh, historic uh, tragedies and how we might learn from them. As examples, uh, the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and the Japanese internment in the West Coast during World War II and in your view, can we learn from these events and apply the lessons uh, to our social problems today? Well, yeah, well, well, we have to, um, right? Um, I'm sure you know the, the famous
2: image of Elizabeth Eckford uh, who's arriving separate from the other Little Little Rock Nine uh, walking to school and she's being harassed by a group of her, her white peers, right? So to me, that's a powerful image for helping students understand this concept of uh, the better angels or the worst instincts. Right? I haven't I haven't seen the documentary, but I've I've read Meacham's book. Um, oftentimes, you know, we we sort of teach social studies through the lens of leaders and policies, right? And that's, and that's probably why so many teachers do it that way. You know, so we can examine the, the worst instincts of Orville Faubus, who was the governor of Arkansas, right. right? Who called in the National Guard to prevent. Uh, the desegregation of, of, of the Little Rock High School from happening. But rather it's it's my belief that students need to examine historical events through the lens of the common folk right, and how the common folk responded to them. So when you look at that that yeah. image, um, you see the better angel of Elizabeth Eckford and you see the worst instincts of her white peers. Um, I think that, that traditional textbook teaching sort of divorces Kids from the historical event that they're studying, right? So they don't see themselves uh, in the event itself. But that's, you know, that's a powerful tool for helping unpack the the. You could be living, you are living, right? We're all living through history, right? But you could be living in a recorded historical moment that's going to get remembered in a particular way. You know, what 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 is it going to be? Your better angels that take over in that moment, or is it going to be your your worst instincts? I think, and I, again, I'm speaking for myself as well here, I don't think we've ever done a great job at, at media literacy. Right. And now we've got another layer of media literacy, right? Like, you know, those charts where they lay out like accurate to inaccurate and politically left and politically right, and they drop the news sources on there. Those are great, mm-hmm. right? But the the meme your uncle shares on Twitter doesn't, that doesn't show up on, yeah. right? So, so we have like multiple layers of preparation that we're just not, doing very well in schools and that's something that can and should be done in social studies classrooms I would think. I I share Dewey's belief that democracy is more than just the relationship between the individual and their government but rather an associated way of living I think is the way that Dewey put it Um, and so that said having a firm grasp of the functions of government uh, provides citizens with a with a certain efficacy to act towards needed change, right? And so it, that's bigger than the pandemic. I think you know you, you put it really well at the beginning that the pandemic didn't create the problems we're seeing but it just sharpened our lens on them. It made them more apparent, right? If you could afford to ignore these problems before you can't ignore them now, right? So I, I do think you know the social studies has a very direct role in schools and preparing young people to, to understand um, the structures of government and,
3: and their agency within them to to make change. Question made me think a lot about that because it's uh, around the social studies helping diverse students student groups to understand the insurrection itself. And she said this, many of my students shared that this event shines the light on systematic racism. Many students feel that this event should not be regarded as more important than other violent acts committed against people of color by police and other important systems. As globally minded and culturally responsive educators, how can we help students make sense of this event? So it sounds like you have students reacting to this as a,
2: the, the events of January 6th as something of, a, of an either or, right? We don't want to lose sight of sort of these larger uh, structural issues. Um, I mean, I see the events of January 6th as all linked in the same web of injustice that Okay. That, that systemic racism is tied to, right? That primarily white protesters were able to overrun the Capitol building and be met with minimal resistance while a diverse group of protesters are faced with almost immediate response from police uh, suggests to me at least that these are interrelated events. Um, I'm not a political psychologist by, by any stretch, but it seems rather convincing that the, the crowd that gathered in DC on January 6th were at least compelled in part by concerns that, America would no longer be a white nation. And certainly the the MAGA rhetoric speaks to this idea of a nostalgia for an earlier time uh, where racial and ethnic minorities were segregated from white society or their opportunities for economic advancement were more limited and and so on. Um, There seems to be a sense uh, from many in white America that to make room at the table of prosperity uh, or political participation, they have to give something up, that there's not enough, like, we can't all sit at the same table. I mean, These are people who see their America slipping away, that they could overrun what I think should have been the most second most secure building in the country uh, with minimal resistance uh, speaks volumes to the, to the privilege that they enjoy. So I, I guess in other words, um, the systemic racism that has, has sustained police brutality I think has also compelled the events of January sixth. As a teacher, I would work to help examine sort of these broader powers of structure, structures of power
3: right.
2: that sustain the one movement uh, and and crush the other.
3: Uh, the New Deal team members have previously discussed the importance of including conversations around empathy into our curriculum beyond standalone lessons. What opportunities do you see for uh, conversations to take place in the social studies curriculum, such as these? Yeah,
2: so in social studies, we talk a lot about uh, historical empathy and sometimes it's just a word that gets used without, without strong definition. Um, but there isn't a firm definition of it. Um, for instance, is historical empathy the outcome of learning? Is it what we want students to do at the end of a lesson? Uh, is it is it a set of skills and dispositions that students take up as they do a particular activity in the classroom? Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that people like me write about and argue about, but for all the contestations over it, uh, I think everyone agrees that cultivating historical empathy is a worthy goal and that it's incredibly difficult to do, right? If the if folks in Northern California in the 1940s had more empathy, perhaps there'd be uh, mass resistance to Japanese incarceration, Japanese-American incarceration, Um but, you know, like you said earlier, the crises we face have brought the need for these kinds of solutions into sharp relief. So, so social studies has to play a role. But I think teachers often underestimate how difficult of a task it can be in cultivating empathy, right? So um, um, Gunnar, Gunnar Myrtle, right, was a Swedish economist and sociologist. She wrote a book in 1944 or 45 called uh, The American Dilemma. And he focused on um, what we were just talking about, um, the paradox of race relations and the American creed of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness uh, and and the treatment of black Americans. And and his, his, his lens of analysis focused primarily on the South, but he believed that once white Americans understood that the treatment of blacks in America stood firmly against the American creed, that once they had that empathy, Right, that or that empathy would kick in, uh, that would solve the tension. And, you know, to a great extent, Martin Luther King took up this, a similar viewpoint in the sit-ins and civil disobedience. Um, and Myrtle's research, by the way, was, was, was foundational to the decision of Brown v. Board in 1954. But we're now seeing the limits of that approach. So, so for instance, when, again, go back to technology, when, when black and brown citizens are harassed, beaten, shot on camera, and it goes up on YouTube or it's splashed all over the news, there are still Americans who, who resist, who resist uh, acknowledging this systemic problem. And so uh, I, I think it speaks to uh, just how big of a, a challenge this is, right? There's still people who are willing to blame the victims when the evidence is, is right there, right, clear as day but we'll we'll begin with
3: empathy and
2: we'll use empathy to learn the
3: facts uh, rather than the other way around. So as a closing question, what advice do you give prospective social studies teachers when they venture out to respond to the challenges and potentials of today's world? What's your guidance for the, the young ones who are about ready to take on this responsibility in the midst of all that we're going through?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it's no small task. None of these are small tasks, right? Um, I mean, the first thing I tell them is is you have to be brave and you have to be bold, right? Studies is unique in that it, it engenders so much public discourse and controversy over what we teach and how we teach it. Mm-hmm. So a, a lot of my students don't really appear aware of how political and contested the curriculum is that they're about to teach, right? And I think some of them I'll speak for myself. When I got into this, when I was a pre-service teacher, I liked history. I was a history nerd. I didn't think very much about you as well, right? (laughs) I didn't think very much about well, why are young people learning this? You know, why why do they need to know about the past, right? So you know, you're teaching on January seventh, the day after January sixth, right? You, I think most teachers, many teachers I spoke to, felt compelled. To, to address it, but felt overwhelmed by the task of doing it. They understood that they needed to do it, how crucial it was for the school to take it up, but they also felt ill-equipped to do it. I think some work in, in, in communities where they are vulnerable, right? They worry for their, their job security, uh, their social status and their position within the community. So it's it's really, really, really hard work. I think it's better to focus on equipping your students with skills that are gonna help them be critical critical consumers of information rather than passive recipients of, of that information, right? And, and you can do this in any content area, but the way that we can do it in social studies is by teaching young people to think like historians. I would say historians are, are by profession, a skeptical bunch, right? When they're presented with, a, with, with the data of their discipline, which primary source documents, Right, they, they ask questions before they do anything, right? They who wrote it, when did they write it, and can I trust it? Mm-hmm. And what more do I need to learn about the time period or about other documents that were created around this that are going to help me do that? I think there has to be so much more of that, that teaching students to think. And I think historical thinking can be a great vehicle uh, for, for equipping students with with a skill set and a disposition that prepares them to, to um interrogate uh, and challenge and be skeptical of the information that they face. Um, so so we'll see, um, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that within this turbulence that we're currently living through, within this difficult time, that that's a time to rethink what we're doing and,
3: and why we do it. So thank you for our New Deal audience. Thank you, it's wonderful to spend some time with you. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you, Steve.
4: the most interesting parts of the conversation between uh, Dr. Timothy Patterson and uh, Dr. Stephen Gross uh, had to do with this notion of how kind of discipline-specific a lot of our instructional programs have become.
3: Even to make the social studies come alive, it was Dewey's connection between school and society. And that that was, and Tim made a great point about you can't just put it all on the social studies teacher, it won't work. And it'll be boring.
5: Well, I think as humans, like we don't live this stuff compartmentalized in these boxes, you know, like we're just dealing with like a historical issue today and we're just dealing with like an emotional reaction today. So this idea of really having them all integrated and infused with one another and that's how our children are taught. I mean, I can only imagine the thinking and the way that they would view the world differently as adults.
0: And that's something we do in early childhood. I mean, that's like one of the keys of early childhood is that you have a theme, an overarching theme, and that goes into everything that you do. And, you know, really when kids are experiencing something at home or in the playground, you know, that they people bring that in and it's it becomes what we explore as as kids. And you sort of lose that as we go into... This is what needs to be done, especially when we're dealing with like standardized testing and standards, we're trying to meet all those standards and not necessarily
4: meeting the immediate needs of the kids. Absolutely. And I think one of the um, kind of... places where the conversation went to talked a little bit about this window of opportunity more tied to a kind of experiential learning, discovering inquiry, um, students being able to reflect on their own experiences, uh, as opposed to being tied to this very like rigid notion of um, here's, you know, responding to high stakes testing, and that
3: sort of thing especially if we want the social studies to be the place where you learn about democracy by doing democracy mm. and being active and being engaged and responding to equity issues by actually helping the world become more equitable. Imagine if schools actually did that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the character education plays a big role in this too. It, it's not just a sense of knowing where you are in history. I mean, I think he made a really good point when he was talking about how, when we are talking about early integration, how when you see those movies, you think, that's somebody else, Uh, you know, I would have done this. But when you see it's regular folk who's going through these experiences and you can relate it back to like, what would I have done? I would hope I would do this, but would I have if I had been in those times? Would I have been on the right side of history? You know, and and the more we sort of tie good citizenship in with that, the more that we wrestle with those big ethical questions
4: that kids confront all the time. To imagine themselves in these studi- social studies lessons and um, to think about historical time periods from their perspective. It makes me think
5: about even how like schools are structured, days are structured, the schedule, like teacher planning. I mean if you think about who teachers are planning with, they're often having department meetings with others in their same department. you know that is the planning team. And um, I think something like this would um, ask for teachers to consider to plan in a different way to communicate with people across disciplines. So there really is this this integrated model happening.
3: And there's really a rich history about using project based learning. The problem comes up with what Susie was mentioning, which is when you have super high stakes testing and say English language arts and mathematics, it's very hard to interface with those if you're the social studies teacher, because those folks have a lot of pressure on them and may not find the time to be doing it. We found in research that schools that had dedicated themselves to project-based often had to drop it because of those pressures. And social studies
4: um, if i may add to that frequently lost instructional time um, that that's that's been well established in the research and of course the arts um, physical education uh, uh, th- those sorts of um disciplines uh lose lose resources um in, in support of um sort of this narrow focus on the the tested areas um, So I think, I think I agree with you, Taryn, that, that uh, shifting of perspectives can happen in multiple, you know, components of, of the school program.
5: And you're so right though, like if we need to increase achievement for a kid in math and they need extra like math support, like they do often get pulled from social studies, you know, like, or science or whatever, but more commonly social studies. That's such an interesting point.
1: I think, I think it takes us back to exactly what we're doing uh, in defining a New Deal leader. Because what this is going to take is going to take a leader to step up and say it's okay. Um, this can't happen in individual classrooms, in my mind. It can't be one teacher out of a department saying this is the direction I'm going to go personally. Um, so it's going to take a, a community of, of people. Uh, and I that starts with a New Deal leader. And, and I'm not talking principal, we see this all the time, not principal not superintendent but a leader We build those and as we build those within i'll speak personally the schools that's where this stuff happens and um, that's why i work with developing new deal leaders and and recognizing uh, how we need to move things just like we're talking about forward um, it's going to take it's going to take special people and that's why our work is so important
0: Today on the New Deal podcast, we will be introducing a new segment called What's the Big Deal? We will be answering questions posed to us on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and we'll be shooting it to our panel who will be able to come up with some wonderful answers. And we're going to begin with the first one. I have a question about finding the balance between equity, privacy, and the concern for my students' welfare and engagement during online video classes. How can I balance the needs of the students educationally and emotionally without compromising their privacy?
4: Really, this one of the unprecedented parts of this um, new world that we're living in is that uh, virtual learning provides a conduit, a window into um, people's houses, people's lives, their families, um, and in all different kinds of ways that could feel intrusive to to families um yet at the same time we're finding that with with the cameras off or the camera not enabled uh the engagement goes down and of course that represents a loss of educational opportunity for students uh so it is certainly um a balancing act um We're finding that some success with asking students to engage here and there. So maybe turning the camera on for a quick moment uh, for a particular um, prompt or activity. And that way we're able to still respect their family's wishes to not allow access into into homes when that might not be welcome, um, but allows the student to still uh, engage in a particular activity.
0: Uh, we've got another one here. Um, This is a parent of a six-year-old and she says I knew that school would open and close all winter and it has and my daughter like most kids even a little more so relies on routines and this has really affected her. Can you suggest some tools or methods of how to explain uh, and deal with all the uncertainty and change?
5: Um, That's a really good question. I think, you know, a lot of times we talk to our families, especially about our little ones, how they really thrive off of structure and routine. And I think what we found this year is that we just can't guarantee that. Um, I know in my own school, we've been in a hybrid model. We've been mostly in person, but there have been times where cohorts have had to go out and quarantine. And just that not knowing on any given day, if you're gonna be in person or you know remote, it really disrupts a child's schedule. And that can really lead to them feeling like they have a lack of control. Um, and we can see all kinds of outcomes because of that behavioral outcomes, emotional outcomes, internalization of feelings. Um, and so I would just urge parents to keep talking to their children. I would see, say, Look for ways that you can um, find opportunities for them to have a little bit of control in their, you know, in their world. Um, whether that's utilizing some kind of chart at home of things that they can expect that they need to do each and every day or each and every week that they can check off check off as they um, complete those, and that can really provide like a sense of accomplishment. But I think that um, yeah, we really need to try to find even if it's small ways that we can um, give our children a voice to kind of express what they want to do um, within certain limits. But I think they really need options and opportunities to have some control over their world right now because they've really lost that in many ways. We have another question
0: in this time of COVID, how do we balance transparency and confidentiality when we know somebody has COVID uh, but we're not allowed to say who it is and where they are? Um, but how do we stay transparent enough to let parents and faculty staff feel comfortable?
1: I'll take that one that that is that is huge. Um, and, and that I don't think it goes away and we see it as a building principal see it a lot. Um, who is it am I well, not who is it? big question is am I at risk? Um, and I think what we've done at the building level and even at the, the family level is it's that trust building. Um, you're building building a relationship with, with the community, building a relationship with your staff to be able to say, look, you'd be notified. Like I'm not going to let you down. I'm not going to put you at risk. I'm not going to allow that to happen. Um, you know, if you are affected, we would let you know. Um, it's kind of to the point uh, just for our school that that people are sharing with each other. they find kind of find comfort in sharing with their colleagues here's what's here's what's happening. Here's what I'm going through. So Finding at, at our school, the confidentiality is not as rigorous anymore. Um, not that we're sharing information, but people are willing to talk about it, and uh, they're very willing to talk about their experiences, talk about how it affects them, talk about you know what what happened to the family and how they managed isolation at home, share strategies, all of that. So. Um, it is tough because people want to know, and rightly so. I mean, have, people have little kids at home; they they have at risk your know, members in the household, and it is constantly a, a, a thought, something on people's mind. Um, but I think creating a creating a um, opportunity for trust that people are going to respect that when you you don't tell us it's okay. It also is frequent communication from. From us as the administrators, look. We know you want to know. We, you're just reaffirming that, or affirming that, and saying, look, we get it. We get it. There's, you know, it's it's hard for us not to share information. However, please know we're not going to put you at risk. You know, if there's there's something you need to know, we're going to let you know. One more strategy is we uh, we reference other medical things that we dealt with prior to COVID that you had to keep confidential. You know, just share examples of this isn't new. This confidentiality piece is not new. You know, we've we've been navigating this. It just happens to be the focus is on COVID. So that's what.
0: Yeah, we've done that with lice for how long? When you've got one kid who has lice in the classroom, you get the same sort of Hysterics, you know, and rightly so, you know, it, it affects your entire house and everything else like that, but not the same thing. You you can't violate somebody's privacy, but you still wanna make sure everyone doesn't go home and give everyone else lives. Eve, right.
3: Steve, you wanna take this one? Okay. Um, one of the things that we've talked about, uh, the school counselors have brought it up on from our team and Kevin building leader and so have you Susie is, it's important to think about the relationship that existed before the critical incidents started to come. And what is that reservoir of, of community, sense of community that has been built up prior to uh, whatever the events are, in this case, uh, COVID? How, how has uh, the team worked together to learn to see each other as really uh, human beings in, in a 360 degree fashion and how do they learn to uh, communicate and depend on one another and trust one another through through trials? And basically, it's like how do we learn to expect the best out of one another? And and so for those who have done this prior to the era that we're in now, I think they're kind of uh, sort of harvesting the rewards of that. And for others, it's time to build it up. But once we're past the time that we're in now, it's no time to forget about community building. If anything is starting to learn the lessons of how critical prior community building was, and to go at it full bore, so that we really have a sense of who, who we are as, as human beings, not to pry into each other's private life, but to really know what's going on with one another. I think that's what makes a wonderful and rich community anyway, so that would be my sense.
0: Thank you. If you'd like to submit a question to What's the Big Deal? Please look for our Twitter feed and Facebook. And you can also find the information on how to submit a question in the show's pages. Thank you for joining us today on the New Deal Podcast. Please be sure to join our mailing list in the show notes.